Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page to find bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The boss's face resembled that of a stone-like facade. His protruding eyes locked onto the doctor. His mind unable to comprehend what he was just told. How could he be dead? He was alive when they put him in the back of that ambulance. He saw that he was still moving all the way until they closed the doors. What the hell happened in the last 20 or so minutes since then? Since the boss stood in a tumultuous volcanic state, Jack was pushed to the breaking point of what he could handle mentally. What the hell happened? How did he get here? He had never felt so far away from home. Getting into this war was a mistake, he thought to himself. War was not the glorious, patriotic, and vivaciously masculine entity that he had been fed through movies, books, and stories from old men. He took to the skies to avoid the carnage on the ground. He chose this path specifically to stay out of the blood-covered trenches that his father had fought in when he was a young man, starving for something to give his life to. He had been tricked. War in the air was no different than war on the ground. War so far for Jack had been about living a mock-up version of life at home, making friends, acquaintances, and comrades, swapping stories over a drink or two. All of that to suddenly see those friends, comrades, and acquaintances blown out of the sky or butchered beyond any human recognition. More tragically, war had been about seeing young, naive, and immature kids fumbling through their own intestines while spending their final moments trying to figure out what happened to them. War was putting a good friend and brother in the back of an ambulance carting him off to be in the caring hands of God, only to discover that God had failed to do his part. Jack could see that the doctor's face fell as he knew the weight of the news he just announced. He said his condolences and walked away to tend to more wounded airmen. Jack fell away from where he was and began walking out of the hospital in a stagger that resembled that of a drunken stupor. However, alcohol wasn't causing his demeanor or his mental, physical, and psychological actions. It was a feeling of impending doom, a shot across the bow of his mental fortitude. It was grief and regret. The boss watched the doctor walk away, and then he helplessly stared at the young nurse, who now looked utterly petrified at the boss's almost statue-like reaction. She too fled from his presence. The boss was now standing all alone, just to the side of the hospital entrance. As he stood there, he watched as stretcher after stretcher of butchered airmen were being brought in. These men, with their traumas and life-altering injuries, all their hurts, bruises, scratches, were from his hand. 
It was in that moment, the veil that had been hung over the boss's eyes since he had got behind the controls of his plane that day had finally been pulled off. He had been lied to on a biblical proportion. He knew that he had messed up. He knew that dozens if not hundreds of innocent lives were extinguished today because of what he thought would be best for him. That's what it boiled down to, and he knew it. Feeling like he was drowning in guilt and shame, he proceeded to walk back out onto the road and head towards where? He couldn't go to his hut. He couldn't bear to face Jack again, let alone men like Brolin and Coca, especially if they had lost men of their own on the mission. He couldn't go to the officer's club. He'd be disowned there. Judging by the looks that the other officers from all three squadrons were giving him on their way to the hospital assured him that he had not gained a single ounce of respect from his contemporaries. In fact, he had lost any chance of earning it. Where was he to go? He knew he couldn't stand in the road anymore. He had to go somewhere. So, he mustered up the physical courage to step forward and made his way towards his section of the airfield. Along the way, he kept running through the day's events in his head, trying to piece together a possible and justified reason for what he did. Every time a thought occurred to him, images of carnage began flashing through his mind, and the sounds of dying screams echoed in his psyche. He was overwhelmed with emotion, and every step he took, his shoulders fell more. He was the victim here, not the villain, he kept telling himself. Why couldn't things just go right for him for once? The boss knew he couldn't fight the overwhelming emotions of anger, sadness, disappointment, and regret, and quickly made his way over to a hut belonging to one of the base personnel so nobody would see him. He arrived behind the hut, knelt down between the large water tank and the half-cylinder structure, and began silently weeping and pounding his fists into the ground. Twenty-two minutes later, April 27th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 1400 hours. Jack stood over by the control tower, among many other airmen who were waiting for the other planes to make their landings. So far, 
only two planes still needed to land. One of them was Brolin's plane, Hailing Mary. With Texas and Cap and Kids both gone, and Fenway Bombshell still missing, the only planes that had returned from the 530th Squadron was Loaded Bull, Dropping Deuces, and Hailing Mary. Moments before Jack arrived at the control tower, Jack ran into Benson from Dropping Deuces, and he was informed that their bombardier, Matthew Nebo, and their navigator, Luther Wertheim, were both injured after a fighter had struck their nose compartment, and due to an oxygen tank being hit, a fire broke out. On top of that, the crew had to manually lower their landing gear, extending flaps and land with no brakes because that fighter attack had made a mess of their plane's electrical system and kept experiencing shortages the entire flight home. What killed Jack more than anything was the look that Benson had in his eyes as he told Jack this information. It was almost like he wanted Jack to know how badly he and the boss had messed up. Benson wasn't like that, though. He wasn't spiteful or even bitter, but he was today, and Jack felt solely responsible. Now, Jack stood in a sea of other airmen, all of whom were starting to venture back to their huts after realizing that the seven missing planes were forever gone and their buddies were never coming back. It was in this moment, Jack looked down and could see Loda Bull being pulled by its tailwheel towards the northeast hangar to be cleaned, evaluated, and repaired before getting sent back to its hard stand, or, if the damage was too extensive, the scrapyard. Jack began wondering if Andy, Rosie, and Skimpy's bodies had been taken out yet, or if they were still inside of the towed bomber. Before Jack knew it, Hailing Mary, the last plane in the sky, was coming in to land. Once Hailing Mary landed, Jack was filled with feelings of grief as he hopelessly waited for Parnell and his crew, a Fenway bombshell, to return. It had been close to an hour since the formation had arrived at Thurlow, and the Fenway did not show or report any emergency landings within the next 20 to 30 minutes, then they would be forever labeled missing in action, which many airmen considered worse than killed in action. Jack knew that he had to move quickly and occupy his mind before he began to get emotional, and he couldn't afford to lose himself now. So he made his way over to where Hailing Mary was going to be parked. Once over there, Jack was astonished to see that Hailing Mary had very little damage done to it. The only piece of evidence to prove that they were on the mission was a cluster of flak holes that were located in their horizontal stabilizer. Within seconds of Hailing Mary's engines being cut, dozens of other airmen from the 530th Squadron huddled around the doors of the bomber. Many of these men were friends of the crew, or they were ground crewmen who wanted to know details about the mission. Watching Brolin, O'Brien, Sheila, and Coca exit their bomber completely clean and unsoiled made Jack feel even more ashamed. He still had Andy's dried blood on his cheeks. His hands were still stained red from both Andy and Rosie's blood. In Jack's head, it made sense that he and his crew got the full weight of hell. Brolin, acting as a prophet, had told Jack what the boss was and warned him about putting his faith in his pilot, 
He got what he deserved, he thought to himself. That's why Brolin and his men were okay. It was all a part of some version of divine lesson. As Jack stood in the middle of the perimeter track, watching the men of Hailing Mary get greeted, he and Brolin both locked eyes for a moment, and Jack could barely handle it. He turned away and began walking back towards the control tower. As he passed by Fenway Bombshell's empty hard stand, he heard a voice calling to him. Jack, Jack, hey, hey, wait up. The voice was from Tango, who was among the group of airmen who were huddled around Hailing Mary. Turning around, Jack saw that Tango was being accompanied by his co-pilot, Bill Davies, who Jack thought oddly looked like he could have been Tango's older brother. Jack, where have you been? We saw your plane, but no one knows what happened to you. Tango called out as he got closer to Jack. Jack, putting his bloodied hands in his pockets in order to hide them, tried to hold his emotions in. All he could get out was, We, um, we had to go be, uh, debriefed. Were you one of the first ones to land then? Asked Bill Davies. Jack nodded his head. What happened up there? Tango asked, seeing the red ring around Jack's head and face. Jack aimed his head down as Tango and Davies approached him. Jack? Tango called out. Jack, trying to lift his eyes close to Tango's face, replied, Be thankful you weren't up there. As Jack arrived at the truck depot at the edge of the airfield, he heard a few ground crewmen and airmen moving towards the control tower. Looking at them, Jack saw some of them pointing to the sky. Looking in the direction they were pointing towards, he saw the faintest sight of an incoming plane. It had been 13 minutes since the plane had been spotted, and Jack was standing by the control tower among airmen and grounds crewmen, who were also waiting. While they hoped that it was one of the bombers from the 300th, the men all knew that it could just be another B-17 on its way to one of the many airfields in the surrounding area. After all, on the way back, there were several fortresses that fell behind due to battle damage. There was no way of knowing who it was. Standing close to Jack was a grounds crewman with a pair of binoculars. Jack mustered up the courage to ask, Hey, what what do you see? The grounds crewman scowled a look over at Jack and replied, It's a 17. Jack rolled his eyes at the grounds crewman. He took in a deep breath and waited a little longer until the bomber in question turned to the west and began in a circling pattern. Once it did, Jack looked to the grounds crewman and asked him the question again. The grounds crewman responded with, It's one of ours. 530th Squadron, it looks like. He's got a dead number one engine. Hearing that brought hope to Jack's spirit. That could only mean one thing. Parnell and his men made it back. Now Jack's head was filled with thousands of questions. How's Parnell? Is anyone hurt? Will they crash on landing? Oh, if they made it all the way back just to crash on landing, Jack for sure would be brought to the lowest point of human existence. There would be no recovering from that, he thought to himself. Sadly, expecting the worst to happen, Jack stood tense as Fenway Bombshell slowly lowered its landing gear and flaps 
and came into land at the northeast end of runway one. Parnell's bomber gently glided downwards and its wheels touched down more than a third of the way down the runway. Jack watched as Fenway moved to the end of the runway, significantly slowing down as it did. Then, the massive plane with minor damage done to it made its way to its hard stand. Jack and a handful of others made their way to hard stand 30, where Fenway would park and cut their engines. Once Jack arrived there, he looked over the bomber some more and saw that one of their propeller blades on the number one engine had a significant chunk taken out of it, close to the root of the blade. Then, located in the engine's lower left side, smack dab in the middle of one of the cylinders was a hole about the size of a 20mm cannon shell. The sight caught the attention of several other airmen, who looked over the damaged engine like it was some holy relic. Suddenly, Parnell emerged from the nose hatch as he jumped down onto the tarmac. Within seconds, men began asking Parnell a thousand questions. The consensus was, after Parnell's engine was hit and he had to feather it, the crew proceeded to follow the formation for as long as they could, but got bogged down due to having to reduce airspeed and altitude. Luckily, by the time they got significantly behind, they were already over the North Sea. Amidst the crowds of inquiring airmen and grounds crewmen, Parnell's eyes met Jack's, and he knew the moment he saw him that Jack was on the verge of a breakdown. I'm sorry, boys. I'll catch up with you guys later on tonight at the officers' club, okay? I'll see you there. Parnell said as he approached Jack like a father would with his son after a bad day at school. Jack? Parnell asked. Jack's lips began to quiver and his eyes swelled up. Before he knew it, Jack's emotions spilled out as he dropped his shoulders and face. Parnell quickly came to Jack and at first, Jack began backing up, not wanting to cause a scene in front of the other airmen. However, Parnell remained unrelenting and buried Jack's face into his chest and held him close. Airmen all around looked at Jack falling apart in the arms of his brother. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a, we're sponsoring them, they're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic and a veteran come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal. The research is impeccable and the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work, or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close, check it out for yourself. If you do, go onto the discussion page on Facebook and tell them that Aaron from Cancer 34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. 
You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. Mills could hear Pally's screams as he moved his way towards the back of the plane. Every inch he moved, there seemed to be something in his way. First it was the tail wheel, now it was this bulkhead, and there were endless amounts of ammo boxes. The amount of obstacles were getting painfully frustrating to Mills, as he now felt like God himself was stopping him from getting to Pally. Out of that frustration, Mills began barreling through the small narrow passageway back to where Pally's gun position was. Looking ahead, he could see Pally hanging from the bomber, his eyes white with fear and horror. As Mills got closer, he began noticing that Pally was getting farther and farther away. With every moment, the tunnel of the passageway grew longer and Pally was getting harder to see. Hearing Pally's screams get louder and louder, Mills picked up his pace, his heart pulsating as he did. Finally, when Mills arrived at Pally, he went to grab him and pull him back into the plane. But as soon as his hand got close to Pally's body, the metal piece he was holding onto ripped from the ammo box and Pally fell away into the bleak nothingness. Then, in a godlike vision, Mills was able to watch Pally fall towards Earth, flailing, screaming, and crying as he did. As he fell through the clouds, Mills called out Pally's name. And in between his cries and screams, Pally called out for Mills. But shortly after, Mills watched Pally hit the ground, turning into a grotesque mess of bone, flesh, and blood. Mills woke up crying, screaming and punching his pillow on his bed. He heard a familiar voice calling out to him. It was Willie. Then, in a moment... It was like a blanket of darkness was lifted from Mills' eyes as he saw that he was laying on his stomach, facing the wall of his hut. Above him, Willie and now Tommy were attempting to calm Mills down and stop him from hurting himself or breaking something. Looking over, Mills saw Bean staring at him with a sense of sadness and awfulness as he was trying to come to grips with the fact that the, quote, older brother of the enlisted men, the man who seemed fearless and the one person Beans felt was capable of withstanding anything this war could throw at him, was now acting like a madman, crawling on his mattress, reaching out for the wall, screaming to the point of his vocal cords frying and punching and throwing jabs at anything that was around him. Once Mills was fully awake, Willie had Mills sit up in his bed and Willie then held him close as he wept with all the life that he had in him. As he did, Tommy proceeded to move to the exit with a pack of cigarettes in one hand and a gold letter in the other. Beans quickly got up and followed Tommy out of the hut. Once outside, Beans saw Tommy lighting up the cigarette 
and Beans asked him for a smoke and a light as well. Once Tommy did so, the two men stood outside in silence, nothing but the cold spring wind blowing through them. As Beans stood in silence, he looked over at Tommy and saw that his eyes were welling up with tears. Tommy? What? Tommy asked, wiping his eyes with his sleeve and then aimed his face towards the ground. You okay? Beans asked, knowing how stupid of a question it was, but didn't know how else to ask it. Tommy paused, his eyes locked onto the ground. His face then fell, and he shook his head and began slowly crying. Hey, 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 Beans called out as he comforted Tommy. I should have been up there, Tommy cried. What? I... I wasn't there for Pally or Skimpy. I should have been up there, Tommy explained in between a sobbing. But you were doing your job, Tommy. Skimpy understood that, Beans reasoned. I... I hate being down there. You have no idea what it's like to be in that fucking ball of metal. It's fucking awful. I wasn't there for Al. I wasn't there for Skippy, and if I was up there, I would have been able to help Mills with Pally. I know I could have. You can't blame yourself, Tommy. You can't. Tommy paused for a moment after Beans' statement, and after taking in two more hits of his cigarette, he asked, You believe in God, right? Beans nodded his head and asked, Yeah, don't you? I don't anymore. Since you believe in that asshole, you can ask him why the hell he had to let Pally and Skimpy die the way they did. Beans didn't know if Tommy was being sarcastic or if he was being serious. After taking a moment to gather himself, he took a puff off his cigarette and said, Tommy, you, you need to go talk to a chaplain. Oh, for what? So I can... Tell him how I feel and then hear a bunch of bullshit about how I need to have more faith and I need to keep being strong? And then what? If he gets the slightest hint of me losing my mind, I get sent to some flak farm. No thank you. Beans was growing concerned with the anger behind Tommy's voice. I'm sorry, Beans uttered. Me too, Beans. Me too. Jack was laying in his bed, staring at the ceiling. His eyes were avoiding looking over at Rosie and Andy's empty beds, for he couldn't take it. Last night was the worst night of Jack's life. His eyes were bloodshot from the lack of sleep since he hadn't slept since the night before the mission of Brunswick. His body ached. His eyes burned. His stomach felt like it was being squeezed. He reached into his pocket for another cigarette and the moment he opened the pack, he realized that he just had one cigarette left. The pack was brand new when Jack went to bed. That meant that he had smoked the entire pack of cigarettes overnight. The full ashtray sitting on Jack's nightstand and the piles of ashes around the ashtray were testaments to the mindless smoking sessions Jack had throughout the night. The previous night was filled with excessive drinking and reckless behavior. He and Parnell drank at the officers' club until they were forced to leave. While they were at the officers' club, they witnessed three bar fights, 
One of them was Deuce's co-pilot, Benson, who got into a fight with the pilot from the 528th Squadron. Worst of all was the fact that the fight was started because the pilot of the 528th Squadron accused Jack of being the, quote, dumbass pilot who got half the 300 shot out of the sky to impress the brass. And Benson came to Jack's defense saying that Jack was not the pilot of the lead ship. He was just the co-pilot, and he was only obeying orders. Jack could still remember the anger in the pilot's eyes as he spit insults and accusations at Jack and his crew. The sad reality was that he and his crew were now hated among the other squadrons, and the boss was nowhere to be found. Jack was still unsure where the boss was last night, since he wasn't in the hut when they arrived back, but somehow came back in the middle of the night. In the back of the hut was Brolin and the other three officers from Hailing Mary. All four men felt great sympathy for Jack and the men of his crew. They witnessed Pally fall from the tail section and Mills nearly falling out himself. Coca said that it was one of the worst things he had ever seen and he and Brolin paid for all of Jack's drinks the night before. However, the men from Hailing Mary had just as much hatred for the boss as they had sympathy for Jack. When the boss arrived back at the hut sometime in the early morning, all four men ignored the boss and didn't bother responding to anything that he said. As Jack laid in his bed smoking his last cigarette, he heard Brolin talking to his three officers about going and getting some breakfast before it runs out. O'Brien proceeded to ask Jack if he wanted to go, and Jack nodded his head. Jack then called for the men of Hilling Mary to head to the mess hall without him, and that he would catch up with them since he still had to get dressed. The men agreed, and soon, it was just Jack and the boss sitting inside the hut. As Jack rose up from his bed and sat on the edge of his mattress, staring at the empty bed of Rosie, he saw the boss sit up in his bed. Looking over, Jack laid his eyes on the visibly hungover boss. The two sat in silence for a while, and as Jack quietly got ready to head to the mess hall, the boss broke the silence. How did you fare last night? Jack didn't answer. Not knowing if Jack heard him, the boss asked the question again, but Jack still didn't answer. Oh, okay. I get it. You're not talking to me. Did you mail it? Jack suddenly asked. Mail what? Rosie's letter. Did you mail it? The boss paused for a moment, and with the look of aggravation, he took a deep breath and went to the foot of his bed and opened up his footlocker. Soon, he lifted Rosie's letter high up in the air, and it was at that moment that Jack asked him why he hadn't mailed it yet. Because I just haven't had the time. The boss responded. Jack was not satisfied with this answer. We got back at 1300 hours yesterday, and the mail office didn't close until 2200. What did you do during that time? The boss was now getting enraged with Jack's line of questioning. How dare he talk to him like this? Who does he think he is? He thought to himself. Standing up straight, the boss aimed his glances of malice at Jack and said, did you forget that you're just the co-pilot and not the authority in the room? It seems to me that you've forgotten. Oh, I haven't forgotten. 
But if you can't bother to complete the only thing that Rosie ever asked of you, then give me the letter and I'll do it. Jack, I know you're angry. Angry doesn't even do it justice. Jack mumbled under his breath. The boss continued by saying, Look, what's done is done, Jack, okay? I took a chance and we took a beating. Took a beating? Listen to yourself. No, you listen to yourself. Now, you're lucky I haven't reported you to the upper brass for insubordination. Oh, Jesus Christ. Here we go again. I told you, I don't care. I'm glad I said what I said. And if I had the chance, I'd do it all over again. Keep talking and I'll keep my promise. By the time I'm done with you, you won't even be able to go near a plane. It would be the first time you ever followed through with your word. The boss was fuming with anger and felt like he was on the verge of attacking Jack. However, he stayed quiet and proceeded to let Jack finish getting ready in his aggravated manner. Jack threw on his A2 leather jacket, and as he headed out of the hut, he said, Mail the letter. As Jack opened the door of the hut, Jack was now standing in front of a sergeant who was just about to enter into the hut. Uh, Captain Bacchus? The sergeant asked. Nope. The captain's right there. Jack said, pointing to the boss before exiting the hut completely. Looking to him, the sergeant said, Captain Bacchus, Colonel Poole would like to see you immediately. I'll take you to him. The boss, fearing the worst, begrudgingly nodded his head and followed the sergeant out of the hut. The boss arrived in Colonel Poole's office and noticed that Colonel Poole was standing by his office window, looking out onto the airfield. After the sergeant closed the door, Colonel Poole asked the boss, Do you believe in luck, Captain Bacchus? No, sir. I believe we make our own luck, the boss replied. Colonel Poole continued to stare out his window and the pregnant pause caused the boss to feel even more anxiety about why he was there. Colonel Poole turned around, faced the boss, and said, I don't know what to believe, to be honest. Would you like to tell me why you decided to bomb Brunswick, even when it was clear that the target was heavily covered? The boss froze. His lower back tensed up with stress, and sweat poured from his brow. I I saw a break in the clouds up ahead. I decided to go for it, sir. The boss responded. A break in the clouds, huh? Yes, sir. I've got to be honest with you, son. I have a very hard time believing that. I've got about a dozen airmen who all confirmed that there was no break in the clouds. Are you telling me that you saw something that a dozen men couldn't see? Colonel Poole's eyes were locked onto the boss's face in order for him to catch even a single twitch or flinch that showed signs that he was lying. However, the boss stayed perfectly still, keeping his eyes locked onto the window. Captain, I asked you a question. Are you telling me that you saw a break in the clouds that nobody else saw? The boss conjured up all the gusto he had left in him and exclaimed, Yes, sir. Colonel Poole was shocked at the boss's statue-like profile. He then walked back over to his desk, picking up a file, and then handed it back to the boss and said, 
Take a look at those. The boss looked down, saw that the folder contained a stack of black and white aerial photographs. The photographs were of the target in Brunswick. Captain, what you did was simply reckless. You proceeded to bomb a covered target when you knew it was covered. You read the weather reports. You knew what was down there, yet you still went for it. Now, I don't know whether to call your little stunt a work of genius, plain foolishness, or just simply stupidity, but I can tell you this. You lucked out. 80% of those bombs hit the target. In fact, it was one of the best bombing results I've seen in a long time. The boss froze, looking down at the photographs. He could see the hundreds of craters that outlined the formation that flew over it. Each line ran right through the target. Before the boss could take a look at the other photos, Colonel Poole grabbed the folder and walked back over to his desk. Once he did, he began his final monologue. Captain Bacchus, it has been brought to my attention that after the bombs were released, both your bombardier and navigator were killed in action, is that correct? The boss nodded his head. And you lost two other crew members on that Brunswick mission. Is that correct? The boss nodded his head. Well, Captain, for the near-perfect navigation over clouded skies without the help of any guided radar, Lieutenant Andrew Moreland will posthumously be awarded the Air Medal. And for bombing a heavily covered target with such precision... Captain Isaac Rosenthal will be posthumously awarded the Silver Star. As Colonel Poole paused, the boss expected for Colonel Poole to announce his award next. However, he continued by saying, Captain Bacchus, you may have gotten lucky, but it is clear to me that if you believe that we make our own luck, that your deceased navigator and bombardier were the ones who made your luck, not you. Now, while I'd normally be inclined to punish such reckless behavior, your actions have seemed to impress headquarters, and it seems that you have gained the respect of your fellow airmen within your squadron, and I haven't forgotten what Captain Dearborn said a few weeks ago about you. Therefore, instead of giving you a medal, I've decided to make you the squadron commander of the 530th Squadron. Report to me at 1400 hours, and I'll go over your responsibilities and show you your office and your living quarters. Is that understood? The boss was in shock. His face lit up, and as he nodded his head and replied, he glanced over at Colonel Poole. Good. I'll be keeping my eye on you, Captain. Do not let your luck get to your head. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. The boss replied before he saluted Colonel Pullback and proceeded to leave the office. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue.
In fact, to give a shout out to those who are supporting this podcast, we want to thank Fernando, Reinhold, Benita, Kyle, and Cedric. Thank you guys so much for all your support and your helping this podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Bird in hand was nearly empty for it was too early for the normal evening crowd. Before the clock struck noon, Tommy and Willie were drowning themselves in silly liquid refreshment. At the moment, Tommy and Willie both stared at the eight shot glasses that were strategically positioned at the center of the table. Tommy and Willie both grabbed one shot glass, and before they took their shot, Tommy declared the purpose of his drinks. To the fallen, which was then followed by Willie adding, to Skimpy. Both men threw their shots back, and after quickly slamming their shot glasses down onto the tabletop, the two men proceeded to grab the next two. To the fallen, shouted Tommy. To Pally and his death that will not be in vain, added Willie. The two men then continued this ritual by commissioning the last four shots to Andy and Rosie. As they finished the shots intended for Rosie, the door of the pub flew open, and walking in was Beans and Mills, who had been looking for their two remaining crew members. As Tommy set his shot glass down, he wiped his lips and called out, Ayo! You boys drinking already? Mills asked. Already? What does that even mean? It's perfect time to drink, Tommy replied. How long have you guys been here? Beans asked, looking concerned. I'll fucking know. Uh, what time is it? Willie asked Tommy, since he didn't have a watch. It is 11.54, Tommy replied. Oh shit, we've been here for nearly an hour and a half, Willie declared. Time flies, right? Tommy said with all of his false excitement he could muster under his breath. Mind if we join? Mills asked pointing to Beans before looking back at Tommy and Willie. Sure, as long as you participate, Tommy said as he looked over at the bar and then asked for two tall pints of milds. And within minutes, the four men continued drinking and making small talk. As Mills took sips of his beer, he remembered the night that he had got Skimpy drunk for the first time. He remembered seeing him sway in his seat like a newborn fawn learning how to walk. His innocence now haunted Mills, and moments like this plagued his mind. Sitting across from Mills, Beans could see his buddy's face fall, and he could only imagine why. He looked over and saw the pure emptiness in both Tommy and Willie's eyes, and he knew all too well that nothing was going to get better. As the drunken storytelling continued into the rest of the day, the external mood of the room rose into one of laughter and glee, but that was all to overcompensate for the dark, empty hole of despair and sadness that the four men felt. Later that day, Jack was sitting at an English pub in Haverhill with Hillhouse, Benson, Parnell, and Ronnie. As Jack clenched his empty beer glass, he listened to Benson share college sorority party stories. Hillhouse and Benson remarkably had a carefree nature to them that made Jack feel comforted, and by the looks of it, Parnell felt the same way. 
On the other hand, Ronnie seemed consumed by the hell that he and his friends were experiencing. Ronnie sat slumped at the end of the wooden booth, spinning his empty rum glass in front of him. Judging by his body language, he wasn't listening to Benson's stories, but was in a state of pure deep thinking. Ronnie had become an enigma to the men he'd attached himself to. While to his circle of friends he felt like he was either their dad or uncle, he had recently stayed quiet and reserved. He often tagged along with Hill House's crew or Brolin's crew, nobody else. He had the appearance of an old, battered soul. This night, Jack couldn't help but notice Ronnie's demeanor. After Benson finished his laugh-inducing story, Parnell, who was sitting between Jack and Ronnie, offered to go and buy a round of drinks for everyone at the table. Once he did, Jack slid over to Ronnie and asked him, Hey, um, how's Ronnie? Oh, Ronnie's alive. Not knowing how to respond to Ronnie's answer, Jack muttered back, Well, that's good. If you weren't, this would be a very awkward conversation. Ronnie gave out a small chuckle, much to Jack's delight, and he glanced over at Jack and replied, Yeah, I would. Hey, uh, how's Mickey? I've been meaning to check up on him. Hillhouse butted in. No, he's, uh, needs to be sent home. They won't send him home until he stabilizes. He keeps getting infections where they made the incisions. I've been avoiding seeing him, though. It's just, just too much. Just not tough enough, I guess. Now, don't start talking like that, Ronnie. You're one of the toughest sons of bitches I know. Hell, you've got more guts than Luther. Jack replied. Then who? Ronnie asked. Luther, the man who went up against the Catholic Church and started the Reformation. Jack replied. Hmm. Nice reference there, Jack. Ronnie replied. Yeah, it wasn't one of my best, I'll be honest. Good to have you back, Ronnie, Jack said. Just then, Parnell arrived back with three beer glasses in hand, which he handed one to Jack, Benson, and Hillhouse. After he did so, he returned to the bar where he grabbed his and Ronnie's drinks. Once Parnell sat Ronnie's glass of rum down on the table, Ronnie instantly downed the drink and proceeded to then get up, thanked Parnell, and headed out the bar. Parnell, looking confused, squeezed himself back into the booth, looked at Jack and asked him what he missed. Jack softly replied with, He's struggling. Aren't we all? Benson muttered under his breath. Just then, Ronnie arrived back at the table with the bottle of rum that he had grabbed from the bar. You okay there, Ronnie? Asked Hillhouse. Jolly, now that I've solved my problem, Ronnie replied. The rest of the table looked at one another with looks of disturbance and concern. After a long night of drinking, Jack stumbled back into his hut, and the only people who were inside of the hut were Brolin and Coca. After closing the door behind him, Jack took a direct path to his bed, and once he arrived, Brolin asked Jack where he had made it to. Jack filled Brolin in on the evening, and after a moment of awkward silence, Jack then spoke up by saying something that had been on his mind for the entire day. Hey, uh... Brolin, I... I've been meaning to apologize to you. 
Apologize? Apologize for what? For for the fact that you warned me about the boss. I knew going to Brunswick was a suicide mission, and it was just stupid. I, I tried to stop it, but... Jack, Jack, Jack. You Don't beat yourself up about it, okay? There was nothing that you could have done. I trust that you did what you could. Brolin replied. He's right, Louis. If you hold on to that, make it your fault, it's going to eat you alive. He's the chief of your crew. Let him deal with that guilt. That's what he gets paid to do. Koka interjected. Just then, the front door of the hut opened up, and Jack was disappointed to see the boss entering into the hut. Once he did, Brolin, Koka, and Jack proceeded to go about their business. As the boss closed the door, he stood still, taking in the tone of the room. He hadn't seen Jack since this morning, and he wasn't sure if Jack had gotten over his feelings of anger and malice, so he tested the waters by asking a simple question. Where did you end up tonight? Jack, Brolin, and Coca, all three looked over at the boss, and then at one another. Brolin asked, Who was that directed to? The boss pointed at Jack. We went into town. Me, Hillhouse, Benson, and the others. Oh, that sounds like fun. The boss awkwardly responded. Jack tightened his lips and nodded his head while he began taking off his boots. You, uh, you still mad? The boss asked. Jack looked up at his chief and couldn't believe that he was so out of touch emotionally. How on earth could he think that Jack would somehow have gotten over the pain and guilt that he was feeling in just a matter of hours? Four of their crew members were dead, and these weren't replacements who were subbing in, or some rookie fill-ins. These were men that the boss supposedly cared about. These were the people that he was instructed and entrusted to lead. How in the hell could he be so obtuse? Jack stared at the boss while he processed the boiling anger that he was now being filled with. Then the boss said, I guess that's a yes. Well, I will have you know that Colonel Poole promoted me today. You're now looking at the commander of the 530th Squadron. That means that you must respect me as such. I'm telling you this because... You seem to have a problem with respecting me as your pilot-in-chief, and while I've been forthcoming on grace, I won't be so forgiving in the future. That goes for you two in the back as well. Brola and Coca stood in shock. Jack looked back at the two men, and Brolin could see Jack's face turning red. Turning back around, Jack looked at the boss and said, Okay. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I will need more than just an okay. I need to hear a yes, sir. At this moment, Coca was beginning to stand up, but Brolin threw his arm over Coca's chest. Do we have a problem, Lieutenant? The boss asked Coca. Coca shook his head, his jaw clenched. Aiming his sights back down onto Jack, he said, Can I hear a yes, sir? Jack, containing all of his rage, looked back up and said, Yes, sir. Good. Now I hope that we can get past whatever we have between us right now because in order for us to do our jobs, we need to work together as a unit. A divided house cannot stand. If you are unable to do so, 
then I will not hesitate to find someone who will. Is that understood? The boss asked. Jack nodded his head. Is that understood, Lieutenant Miller? Yes, sir. Jack responded. Good. Well, I'm going to go check on some of the men. I'll be back momentarily. The boss retorted as he walked to the front door and left the hut, leaving a shocked, angered, and pissed off Jack. In the enlisted men's hut, the sounds of men sleeping filled the space. Willie was lying in his bed, drenched in sweat. He and Tommy, by some miracle, returned from their day's worth of drinking, mostly with the help of Mills and Beans, who basically helped drag them back to base. Willie was laying on his left side, and as his face laid on his pillow, his face fell into a state of panic. With his eyes still closed, he began breathing heavier and heavier. His body began swaying in his bed. He then rested on his back and began feeling pinned down, unable to move. He found it hard to breathe. The dream that he was having was throwing him into a state of terror, and as sweat continued to pour from his brow, Mills, who was on the other side of the room, was awakened by the sounds of short gasps of breath. Sitting up in his bed, Mills looked over and could hear the sounds coming from Willie and Tommy's side of the room. Thinking that either Tommy or Willie were choking on their own drunk-induced vomit, Mills quickly got up and ran over to where Tommy and Willie's beds were located. Once he arrived, he saw that Willie was the one making the awful sound. Mills placed his hand on Willie's arm, and the moment he did, Willie arose from his bed, breathing heavily, almost as though he were underwater and had just rose to the surface. Under his heavy breathing, Willie began yelling out, Get out! Get out! Get out! I'll cover you! Mills began yelling back, trying to calm Willie down, as well as wake him up. The yelling and heavy breathing awoke everybody else in the hut. With looks of worry and concern on the rest of the men's faces, they all watched in darkness as Mills attempted to try to wake Willie up. Then Willie's eyes opened, and he began checking himself and checked Mills. You're all right, Willie. You're all right, Mills called out. With open and scared eyes, Willie asked Mills, We're not in the channel? No, you're in the hut. That's when Willie asked Mills the most gutting question he could have asked. Was it all a dream? Pally and Skimpy, are they here? Mills's eyes began watering up at the sound of Pally's name and the sudden image of Pally's final moments were now imprinted into Mills's mind. He softly muttered back, No. That wasn't a dream. Then, in Willie's still drunken stupor, he began to weep. Slowly, Beans and Tommy arrived at Willie's bed, and together, they held their grieving brother as they endured what would be a long, tear-filled night. Thank you for listening to Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of Obama crew and World War II. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Cancer 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness for the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. 
Thank you for listening and stay tuned next time 